Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The second and final 2023 MotoGP preseason test is just days away. So last week on the Race MotoGP podcast, we asked for your preseason burning questions for Valentin Hurunchi and Simon Patterson and me, Matt Beer, to tackle this week. And uh, you obliged with a really, really fun set of questions. Most of them kind of preseason themed. Some of them are on some even more fun tangents. So we're going to like stretch the theme of the episode a little bit and cover off uh, as, as many as we can of the things you've asked basically uh, I'd, I'd like to just mention at this point that Simon is recording this podcast literally from the sea because he is on his way to Portimao uh, by boat at the moment he's bobbing up and down oh, he's just moving his camera so again this is a great kind of visual trick for this audio podcast I can now me and Val can now see the sea through Simon's window and it looks yeah that portal Matt. Portal. portal. Yeah, I don't spend much time on boats. I yes. don't know the tech. Well, boat, it's a portal. Yeah, okay, fine. Porthole. Anyway, how's the crossing so far, Simon? Um, not so bad. I've, I've been asleep for most of it, not going to lie, because we drove all night to get to the boat, and then we're spending 30 hours in the boat from Ireland to northern Spain. Yeah, that sounds fun. No, it, it does. If you're like, I think it entirely <laughs> depends on whether you're throwing up or not. If you're not throwing up, it's the experience of a lifetime. If you are, then oops. Yeah, okay. The last time I did this cross, and I spent it entirely in bed because it was so rough. Um, this is much better. Yeah, for those of you, which is everyone apart from me and Val who can't see Simon's motion, it's very gentle bobbing, if if that. So, um, uh, yeah, we should get through this podcast uh, smoothly on that front. Right, we're going to get straight into the questions because you've sent us some really enjoyable ones to to dig into. So the first one is from Ian in Surrey, and this is one of a couple that are Yamaha-themed, um, perhaps unsurprisingly given that so much of this year's scope for a title battle depends on uh, Yamaha's progress. So let's hear from Ian. Hello, gents. It's Ian in Surrey here. Hope you're keeping well. I have a quick question for you. What is the future looking like for Yamaha in MotoGP? And I mean that in two ways. Firstly, with the development of the bike, with the absence of a satellite team and also only one rider who's been frequently performing over the last couple of years. And secondly, in terms of developing up and coming talent from Moto2 and Moto3, again, with the absence of a satellite team, obviously, they've got nowhere to put young riders coming up and only potentially one seat in the case of Morbidelli's, which may be available in the future. Um, of course, there is a solution to that, which is Yamaha rebuilding tyres with Valentino and getting VR46 on board, because then they'd have not only a satellite team, but also a channel there to bring up ta- talent uh, through VR46 Academy. But now that they've got such... Um, a strong bond with Ducati and starting to perform really well, especially with Luca in the uh, recent test. So would VR46 even consider looking at Yamaha when they're starting to starting to perform now? So I'll be interested to hear what you think of that, what you think the future is going to look like for Yamaha. As always, keep up the good work. 
really enjoy listening to the podcast and yeah look forward to hearing your thoughts soon so as ian says yamaha has a kind of double problem from its current state of no satellite team and only one competitive rider both how far can it develop the bike with such a big load on fabio quattararo's shoulders and also where is its next quattararo coming from when every other factory has a talent pipeline already set up an enormous talent pipeline in some cases and uh, yamaha is still you know trying to grab people from elsewhere so let's do the development side of things first what do you two think about that i mean they they have a test i, I know the the importance of having a satellite sort of team acting as extra test mules also sometimes during during race weekends obviously very frequently emphasized in modern MotoGP, and it feels like something that Yamaha, in particular in modern times, hasn't really capitalized on through the Tech 3, Patronus, RNF, and now nothing uh, progression. But, at, you know, at the same time, as long as you have a, a competent, good test rider, which they do, obviously, in addition to the very experienced Japanese test team, they have Cal Crutchlow, who's as, as competitive and good a test rider as you could, as you could ask for. Um, and with, you know, with Fabio... It's not really that big an issue, I don't think. I mean, it's something that you would ideally fix, but you can you can sort of see why Yamaha hasn't really hit panic stations at hitting just two bikes on the grid. Uh, they, they, they still have the capacity and the resource to develop the, the hell out of the M1. They're, you know, they're getting a massive power boost. They're investing in the sort of European engine department side of things. I think they're okay. Uh, it'd be good to have a satellite team presumably and it's it sounds like it's more of an issue of not so much bike development as bike in weekend honing it's like honing on the ideal setup trying all the tire options trying this and that even if the riding styles are different that felt like something they were noticeably missing last year there was one weekend where they missed out on the best race tire because out of its four riders only Darren Binder tried it in one run or something like that uh, I think that's really the big one. Is that worth the financial muscle that it would take to bring aboard a satellite team right now and try to get it, one of the existing satellite teams to sever their existing contractual relationships with someone else? Probably, but I don't think it's like a, a life or death thing. That is an interesting point there, Val, because last year with eight Ducatis on the grid, often the Ducati riders talked about how much they would learn about riding style, about who was quicker in what corner from each other. But at the same time, you had well, how many Ducati specs do we have on the grid all at once at some points last season? And, and how confusing did that seem for Ducati's development direction early in the year? I didn't get the impression that all this data was necessarily helping the team, even if the riders were able to learn from each other. The team just seemed to be going down in the first part of the season, more blind alleys for having that many bikes. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I, I don't think that losing their satellite team is going to have a huge impact on Yamaha simply because Yamaha have never really bothered to use their, their satellite team for development, like Val says. Um, but where we're going to see an impact is race weekends. They're going to have less data. It's going to make Quattararo even more isolated than he essentially was last year with a, a teammate who wasn't up to scratch for most of the season. Um, and if we have another season where Franco Morbidelli is similarly struggling to perform. He is both not going to be there much longer and he is going to make Quattararo even more kind of a one-man band where he has just simply got no other data to rely upon. And that's 
for me, that's much more of a concern than uh, any issue with the long-term bike development. I, just, I, I don't think it's a, it's a new concern going from what we heard all throughout last year. And I think if Morbidelli even takes, even if he like halves the enormous gap that he had to Quartararo in, you know, last year, then immediately, automatically, he becomes by himself more useful than what Quartararo had from the three other bikes on the grid in 2022, excluding for the rounds when Cal Crutchlow came in and seemed to have had a sort of a positive additional impact going by what Yamaha said. That like before that and throughout, it just it doesn't sound like it was data Quartararo was particularly looking at or aware of or expecting to do anything with. Um, so that's going to be important. But it you know it does sound like from what Lynn Jarvis has told uh, German media, it sounds like they are very much in the hunt for a satellite team now. So it's not like the Suzuki situation of you know David Abrevio each year like yeah we might do it if I push it through the board, which I won't. But if I do it, then we might do it. And in the end, you know. Didn't happen. Yamaha, it sounds like, are committed to finding a new satellite team partner. If they get like seriously, massively financially committed to it, then I think existing barriers will not stand in their way. Uh, but equally, there's no like, there's no painless solution to it right now. It sounds like. Obviously, you mentioned VR46, which uh, Yamaha also brought up. It is an it is an obvious candidate, and I think. Financially, you can make it work as financially you can make anything work. Even, you know, even as, as Simon has mentioned, Valentino Rossi is probably not in it for the money, but the money helps. And sometimes, you know, you can offer enough money to where everybody becomes in it for the money. Um, obviously, the M1 is not so good, but being the sort of... Yamaha would have to promise its new team that it will address the things that drove away first Tech 3 and then RNF. Basically, it has to promise its team that it will basically become an extension of the factory team rather than a client. And that's, you know, that's a philosophical thing, whether they're willing to do that or not. I mean, Yamaha's problem, both with securing a new satellite team and with securing a, a top rider in that pipeline, uh, to answer the second part of Ian's question, both come down to money. Because they're at the point now where the way that they're going to recruit a replacement or a co-star to Fabio Quartararo is going to be by throwing a massive pot of cash at them a la Ducati sort of Sierra 2014-2015 when their bike wasn't good enough to recruit top talent you know solely based on performance um the problem with that is that there will be a finite pot of money in Yamaha and Ryder I would imagine will take preference over satellite team especially if Fabio Quartararo does get sort of lured away by someone else. Um, and I'm not sure how much will there is in Japan, in Yamaha headquarters in Iwata, to spend massive, massive, massive amounts of money on MotoGP at the minute. And that, for me, is a bit of a concern for Yamaha's sort of longer-term future. You know, we're looking at a team that is arguably in a Suzuki-esque situation right now, although albeit with a, a very different MotoGP history behind it. Um, and, and yeah, you know, we know that series bosses Dorna aren't exactly the most content to spend their own money sometimes, um, as we've seen at the minute with the debate about riders' uh, sprint race performance bonuses. But, you know, they really need to be getting in on this act as well, I think, and, and making sure that we don't lose another manufacturer from the grid. 
from the way basically every motorsport series we cover at the race has been going these past few years, a cost cap is either already there or is being introduced. The words cost cap haven't really popped up in a MotoGP contest, a context at all, but you have to imagine they will, at least in some point, you know, both me and Simon were in a Luca Marini VR46 uh, launch session with journalists in which Luca, bless him, spoke for 30 minutes. And among the things he said was that there's, you know, there are real budget concerns up and down the grid. And that's, you know, that's the kind of situation where you start to think about how governance can work at the money redistribution and any redistribution would also, I think, come with some sort of upper spending limitation, which also, you know, which also could help racing. Like the, the more you limit manufacturer spending, the less awful winglets you get on the bikes, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I love how we've gone from just kind of looking at a question that was largely about a Yamaha satellite team to the entire future of Yamaha as a manufacturer in MotoGP and uh, banning wings. I have to say, I didn't think until you brought in that Suzuki comparison that this this kind of trajectory Yamaha's on would get anywhere near Yamaha pulling out of MotoGP. And obviously that is still uh, yeah, not something that's immediately on the cards, but I totally see the point that if Yamaha HQ is getting less keen on spending money on MotoGP, then it is a prospect that we have to think about realistically further down the line the idea of MotoGP with no Yamaha which does sound mad but it's not it's not impossible is it I, I mean I think it is but like I, I can't I can't imagine it but maybe famous last words but like I can't imagine the MotoGP without Suzuki because we've been here already yeah several times uh, so you know it's I think there's still a bit of a, a bit of a difference a bit of a gap there before anybody at Yamaha seriously considers shutting down shop but you know economic realities they they do things yeah, I, like I should say, I don't think this is likely by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you know, it is definitely something that we should be at least aware of. Yeah, you know, Suzuki surprised us all. Let's not get caught surprised again. Yeah, I do think with the way the universe has changed, well, the, this world has changed in the last couple of years. Lots of things that seemed impossible in motorsport are probably not impossible anymore. Um, speaking of slightly more, um, uh, slightly less existential Yamaha problems, perhaps Lorenzo from Italy sent us a written question asking, "What could be the issue with the Yamaha M1 that compromised its wonderful qualifying pace that it had until mid 2021?" Quattararo in Austria last year mentioned it had become really unstable on the front with the qualifying setup, but didn't speak about it again. Um, good question, Lorenzo, because often when I think of uh, Yamaha qualifying downturn, I think the big problem is massive number of Ducatis qualifying faster, but it's not. It's not only that, is it? It's not only that, but it's like if you if you take the whole bulk of Quartararo comments, and we're, we're you know we're talking about the twenty two bike right now rather than the twenty three, which I I would imagine is a completely different you know kettle of fish because in the twenty three have the extra top speed, which I think changes your balance outright completely. Even though the riders say it's not been that big of a difference in engine character, but I think the the lap times over a single lap suggest there is a. There's a knock-on effect that they have to figure out. Um, in terms of what Quartararo has been saying, yes, there there were times where he said that the bike didn't feel very good, you know, including on the front or just generally feeling very unstable and shaky and liable to throw him off. But that's also might be just a consequence of how much pressure he would put on himself to push because of the you know, the obvious deficit, like the built-in problem of the straight line speed. 
I, I revisited some of his, you know, older comments from last year. And when, you know, when he qualified, like, again, behind the Ducatis at Aragon, basically the line was familiar. I'm good through the through the sectors. And then I come up on the straight and four tenths are gone. And that's, you know, that's going to put you under pressure. That's maybe going to make you do certain things with the bike that you have to really take maybe risks and make your ride less comfortable and just approach it in a less conservative way. Because again, he wasn't crashing much in qualifying. You know, he says it's unstable. He says it's not, you know, not so reliable. And you can see that on the bike and you can see that when he qualifies. But uh, it's just, you know, I think it was just probably mostly the top speed thing, I think. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I think the number one problem, first and foremost, is it Ducatis. You know, that that is a bike that's always been really good at qualifying. And it's not like... You know, whenever you look at it, it's not like Quadraro is suddenly finishing behind a load of uh, Aprilias and Hondas every week in the grid in qualifying. He is literally just, you know, he's the best of the rest most weeks. Um, and that, for me, points at, at one other manufacturer building a bike that's really, really, really good at qualifying. Um, and more than anything else, that's what's affected him. You know, when you see... Uh, rookies jump on the Ducati and qualify on pole position in their first or second weekend on it a la Jorge Martin um, I think that's just a bike that's really really good at time attack Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products that means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on to a question about someone from the manufacturer that's made qualifying a nightmare for Yamaha, and that's Ducati. And this is kind of time for the uh, Luca Marini fan club section of this podcast, which appears quite regularly. Uh, the question is from Sean from Queensland. Good morning from Australia, gents. It's Sean from Queensland. Not originally. Uh, Val, you'll be glad to know I'm not getting sucked into a jet engine this time. So I am safe. Thank you. Um... My question is about Luca Marini. Uh, he, he's got a job for life according to your last uh, podcast. He's at VR46, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. But if you were another team, would you look at him and say, ooh, might have me some of that? Like he's, he's shown some signs of brilliance over the last, the last little while. He's, he's getting there, you know, slowly but surely, methodically. Um, do you reckon he'd ever leave? Would he go somewhere else? Or would his, his big bro just not be too keen on it? Thanks, guys. Love the podcast, as as I always do. 
So what do you two reckon? Are other teams starting to look at Luca Marini? And if they are, do they think there's any point in doing so? Or is he is he staying with the family? Val? <laughs> I mean, it's a bit too early for that, I think. Because if you are in... Like, it depends on what kind of outside team you're looking for. I think Luca needs to get a few more years under his belt where he becomes a sort of reliable veteran option. He already kind of rides like a reliable veteran option in a sort. Like, he basically just doesn't retire from races. He keeps the repair bills to a minimum. He's clearly a very smart, very pleasant presence to have. Uh, but I don't think there's going to be interest from, and maybe that's doing Luca a disservice, I don't think there's going to be interest from teams that are like markedly better than VR46 Ducati. I think if there is somebody from that side who is going to be poached away, it is Marco Bezzecchi, who... You know, let's not forget Marco Bezzecchi is already a MotoGP podium finisher who was not that far off winning, I think, at Assen. Uh, Luca has not come anywhere near that close to, to winning a race. Um, I think, yeah, I think Bezzecchi is going to attract interest from other factories. I asked him about it um, after the VR46 launch and he basically, he made it pretty clear that he wants to be a Ducati factory rider. But also that, you know, he just generally wants to be a factory rider. I don't know how the Ducati path looks, but I think that if other manufacturers start asking about, he'll consider it very seriously. Luca also wants to be a factory rider, but I don't think his trajectory up is quite as sharp. Uh, I think he's a good fit for VR36. I think he's going to stay there until it makes sense for both parties, maybe, to both make space and while ensuring that there's a good MotoGP offer for Luca to go elsewhere maybe try something else we'll see how he does this year because ultimately all of this might age horribly if we go into round one and you know because of the refined GP22 and Luca's really good preseason he just comes out of the block and you know wins a sprint scores a podium in the main race obviously MotoGP heads get turned like that in a in a snap of a finger but Right now, I don't. I don't really see it. I mean, the 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 good thing about Luca Marini, and this came up again in the team launch earlier this week to the to the extent that I posted about it on social media. He is a super intelligent guy, and I think it's fair to say that he's very pragmatic about MotoGP and about how it works and about his place in it. And you know, if something were to happen if there was a young talent in the pipeline in vr46 if there was something came along that was set to displace him i think he'd take it in the chin he wouldn't be upset about it um it wouldn't you know it it, it wouldn't burn bridges um and then you know the other thing to consider is that we kind of have an example at the minute in MotoGP of a brother leaving the family business and forging his own path and so far looking like it's going to work out okay for him in the form of Alex Marquez uh, ditching Honda after being, you know, basically groomed to be Mark Marquez's number two for his entire career and heading off to Cassini Ducati where he's having a much better time. Um, it, it wouldn't be the end of Luca Marini where he to step outside the VR46 program. Um, but, you know, as Val says... There's no rush on it. This isn't something that's that's going to happen in the immediate future because he's doing a good job there. And I'd be very, very surprised if he's not a, maybe not a regular podium contender this year, but a, a podium contender at certain races and in some places throughout the year. 
I think you've you hit the nail on the head really well when you were like, if he if you're running a satellite team, you'd give him a shout. I think that's very. I think he is an ideal satellite team rider. He is with the best satellite team he can possibly be with at the moment, given the bike it has and the family relationship. So, don't see him heading anywhere else. He's also probably got a long future in MotoGP as a test rider when he's finished racing. Yeah, because he's such a clever guy. Let's uh, let's switch to the Twitter list now. We had a few come in on Twitter. We're going to go for quick fire answer on these because some of these invite themselves to just no idea or mm, not going to happen responses. But let's give it a go. So the first one from Pete Samuels who asks, "When's the new front tire showing up?" Simon, remind listeners why everyone's waiting for a new front tire and when is it going to appear? We're waiting for a new front tire because we're in an in an unusual position where MotoGP development has jumped past the level of the tyres and everyone's going to spend all this season worrying about whether or not their front pressure is too high and if so, whether or not they're instantly going to fall off whenever they get stuck behind another bike. Michelin are taking their time to develop a new tyre because developing new front tyres is a complicated thing and I would imagine, realistically, we will see it appear in 2023 at some of the post-race tests that are scattered through the year and it'll probably get used by some of the test riders in private testing, but we won't see it on the grid until at least the start of the 2024 season. Next question from Alex McDee. This is a Miguel Oliveira question. Will Aprilia change his machine spec to a 2023 one if he wins races or gets podiums ahead of the factory team? Could be awkward. Val, go for it. Okay, so obviously they can't put a new engine in there because of engine homologation. So that, that part of it is simple. So the question in terms of spec will then be, if Aprilia develops some extra aero business and stuff like that, makes some sort of ergonomics change, blah, 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 will that trickle down to Oliveira and how quickly? And will that depend on his results? But, you know, like probably, yes. But at the same time, I I don't think this is the year for Oliveira where it will really matter to him massively. And it did not sound like it bothered him particularly one way or another Every time he was asked about it during the preseason or during those sort of early days of trying the Aprilia, I think there's an understanding of using this here just to, to learn the Aprilia, to understand everything there is to know about it with a, with a package that's fairly consistent. And, you know, there's a lot of value in that. Uh, Ine Bastianini got some developments with Ducati last year, but I think he also turned some of them down. He was like, I think he was fairly content with what he had and didn't really mind terribly much to be riding a you know, 2021. And in fact, all of his rivals probably would rather that he was also in a 2022 that wasn't so, you know, so well-born. I think the bigger question will be how the Aprilia-RNF relationship is structured to where if Oliveira has a really good season or if both Oliveira and Fernandez have a really good season, then what do we do with bike specs for the following year? Whether we make it a fleet of four factory bikes whether we continue with a sort of hand-me-down policy. Uh, but, you know, again, if, if, if this was a premium to Oliveira, then would he have left KTM? Because, at you know, at GasCast, he would have had what is basically an up-to-date bike, you know. I mean, some variants, but yeah. And instead of that, he's went to, you know, he's decided to try out a new thing, and I think he's going to focus on just making himself fit to that new thing to the maximum first before trying to get something extra out of Aprilia. Next social media question is from Oliver Record, who asks, have there been any discussions about limiting or controlling the prolifer- pro- proliferation of aero on bikes? 
And after last week's debacle, I'm not going to ask for a re-record of that. Johnny, leave in my inability to say proliferation. It's a difficult word. So have there been any discussions about controlling the proliferation of aero on bikes? MotoGP is in danger of becoming another F1, too sensitive to turbulence to pass effectively. Simon. I mean, in a nutshell, the answer is no, because the people responsible for the aero, the manufacturers, essentially control the rulebook. Um, you know, all all technical rules comes through the Motorcycle Sports Manufacturers Association. There is a veto that can be used at a higher level in the Grand Prix Commission, but pretty much only on safety grounds. Um, so any opportunity to limit aero will only come for the 2026 season and the end of the current rulebook and the introduction of a new one, where I really hope that series bosses Dorna are going to push for it, but I'm not sure that's the case because the factories do have a you know a, a large amount of sway in how things run in this championship. Let's uh, well we're talking about people who have sway over this championship and um, whose decisions we sometimes question on this podcast. Let's listen to Andrew from Ontario, Canada's question about uh, MotoGP's video pass stream and the pricing of it specifically. Hey guys, love the podcast and I uh, started becoming a MotoGP fan like two years ago. Uh, so now I look forward to every podcast and every race review. Um, I just wondered if you had any insight to the pricing structure for MotoGP TV or whatever they call it now. Uh, because there was an ad on Facebook the other day for it. And it, for me, being in Northern Ontario, Canada, which is north of Toronto, it works out to $203 Canadian for the whole season. Now, if you're going to watch every single race from every class and every practice session, I guess that's a good value. But I only really want to watch the the feature race and now the sprints, I guess. Um, but 203 Canadian, whereas in comparison, F1 TV was on sale and it was $69 Canadian. So I wondered if you had any insight to the pricing structure or what, how MotoGP... The owners think they're going to attract new people with prices like that. Thanks for listening, and uh, I look forward to your podcast reviews uh, or your race reviews on podcasts this year. So, Simon, at the start of this year, um, we ran a column from you on the race with your suggestion that the sprint races should just be made free to air, which was an enormously popular suggestion. I know you've got strong feelings on everything around MotoGP broadcasting, the paywalling of it in general, both the video pass stream and how little of it is left on free-to-air TV. Um, so the, the soapbox is yours in response to to Andrew's question. I mean, senior, well, to, to start specifically with the video pass and the pricing for it, uh, Andrew's paying $200 Canadian, which is about 140 euros, 140 US dollars, probably about £120 sterling, um, which is outrageous compared to the price you pay for some other sports series. Um, I I can't think of another sports subscription that I have that is in any way, you know, anywhere near that. Um, I pay like $80 US for the Supercross season. Um, I pay, I think, $200 Australian, which is £100 for a... Um, an Australian Rugby League subscription that gives me access to like 15 games a weekend for half the year. It's not good value for money, but that's more by design than by accident. 
um, senior people within Dorna who are no longer there have admitted in the past to me that the video pass is essentially something that they have because they feel like they have to have it and not something that they have because they want to have it. And that's reflected both in the price and in the quality of the service you get. Um, you know, it, this is a system that frequently falls apart, as anyone that's tried to watch a full season on it will tell you. Uh, most notably, I think, 2021 at the British Grand Prix, where the the whole thing went down for the main race and no one got to watch the race if you were relying on video pass and then whenever you tried to complain to Dorn afterwards they told you oh well these things happen and no one got any compensation for it either um th that is very indicative of their entire attitude towards it and it's one of many ways in which the championship is quite backwards and very short-term focused because you know, Andrew is exactly right in his question. It's not something that's going to help bring in new fans to the sport. Because if you're a new MotoGP fan and want to come into the sport, you have to make a, a pretty substantial uh, financial commitment to do so. If you're in sort of countries where there's an established MotoGP fan base, because even if you're in the UK, for example, and want BT Sport, it's going to cost you 30 or 40 pounds a month. But what's even worse is that there are new potential new fans in audiences like America where you can't even watch the races live on TV. And then the video pass, the alternative that lets you do that is still terrible. Um, yeah, it, it's something that needs to be changed. And I'm hoping that the departure of Manuel Arroyo, who was the, the sort of second in command on Dorna and who was essentially in charge of commercial media, um, will bring in some new fresh ideas for the near future i i like video pass more than simon in terms of its you know functionality and the way it works like i remember the the british grand prix thing i think but i've also i'm also battle scarred by F, f1's f1 tv rollouts and how that how that went how it basically barely worked for the first few months if i remember correctly at least for for some of the people some of my friends for some of the people i've spoken to it wasn't available in my territory at the time it's you know there are there are good things about the like some of the functionality that it has. I think there are moments where it goes down and the timing in particular can be a bit finicky, but also it's a really good timing and they offer like multiple stream options on the, anyway, this is not a video pass commercial. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to, trying to offer a little bit, a little bit of balance. Um, the, the pricing is, it's wrong. It's just wrong. And I, I look, I'm not the accountant. I'm not the one who has to balance the books. I'm not the one who has to make sure it's, you know, it's in the green, but the inflexibility doesn't doesn't help anyone. Like Simon, I have my own sports subscriptions, and the one that always comes to mind is so I I pay for NFL Game Pass, which is the, the super important thing in, in in my household right now, and it's so I paid fifty dollars I think for having the whole season of not full games, but like you get a live stream of basically highlights from every game going at the same time. So like multiple games being updated to you and then you can rewatch really, really in-depth highlights at the end if you if you so feel like it. And then you can pay an extra 15 and watch the entire playoffs. I mean, that's, that's the kind of flexibility that you have to offer incoming fans because you're not, you can't just have the pricing model for the really hardcores. You can't just, you know, tack on every session and go like, if you want to watch our sport, well, here's here's a price price point for FP1, FP2, FP3, F FP15, FP79. Go watch all of them. Enjoy. This is your life now and you've, you've invested into this. You have to have some sort of 
race only option you you have to be more flexible i mean that's that's just really important and i think you know sprints for free would have been a would have been a cool idea i understand that anything like that like when you introduce sprints you also do it for your tv partners so farming that out for free is a insanely difficult conversation to have with like 15 different companies that of which all 15 will tell you you're out of your mind but you know at some point we have to make this thing available to the masses right i mean that's the only that's the only way it grows and it stays people have to be able to to follow it and preferably not just on terrestrial tv but online yeah and and just to throw in there it's completely mad that Dorna run both MotoGP and World Superbikes, and I can't buy a joint video pass for the two. That's true. Yeah, like that. That seems like an amazingly easy way to engage fans, and they don't even do that. Yeah, I think the the different levels are, are a really important thing for them to think about at some point. You've got to offer a way of hooking people. You've got to offer a little taster. I mean, I, I've been a video pass user since 2007, and I must have been cheap enough back then that as a freelancer, I was fine to just go straight in and go, right, I'm going to learn about MotoGP. I must watch every session of everything. I can afford this. I don't think I really could, but I just did anyway at that point. The archive on video pass is fantastic. It, yeah, as a research tool for us, it's amazing yeah. to go back through the, oh, yeah. the footage and the interviews there. You get if you if you were looking at it in terms of pay this much to watch everything ever that's ever happened that's great but you're not going to want to watch everything ever that's ever happened unless you like the championship in the first place and it's very hard to like the championship in the first place unless you can have a little teaser of it and that was why okay val i I agree making the sprints free to air is a difficult conversation with bt and its equivalents but it's just it was just such a good idea i thought simon just give people a reason to to have a little bite of this before they commit tons of money to to watching it all season um, speaking of uh, people getting into MotoGP for the, for the first time, one of our listener questions was from Mina from the USA, who is a relatively new MotoGP fan. Um, this is a very enjoyable voice note for her description of riding styles and um, actually mirrors my early experience of getting to MotoGP in 2006 and going, oh, yeah. Hi, y'all. I'm Mina. I'm from the US. Uh, I'm a pretty new fan of MotoGP uh, and a pretty inobservant person. Uh, so I want to know if y'all could give a, a rundown on riding styles for this year. Like, who rides like who? What sets certain people apart from others? How can I go from, ooh, they're leaning, to being a, a touch more thoughtful in my watching? Um, I also want to know what storylines y'all think are the most interesting for this year, or forever. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to the pod. Okay, so Simon, let's go beyond the their leaning. Tell us more about the differences in rider styles these days and some things for me and other other new fans to try to watch out for. I mean, I'm I'm not the best person in the world to talk about this because I've never raced motorbikes and generally the journalists that are best at talking about this are the ones that have raced. Um, there has always been kind of two distinct styles in MotoGP there's been the guys that are aggressive, hard-breaking early accelerating and there's the guys that have carried corner speed and rolled through corners to come out faster um, which kind of always has fit with the two types of bike that we've had as well in the form of the, the V4s and the inline 4s because inline 4s are all about corner speed and V4s are all about acceleration um, but as the grid has kind of morphed 
into a very homogeneous thing where every bike essentially with the exception of two Yamahas works in the exact same way now um, riding styles have become I think a bit harder to differentiate a bit harder to see because everyone has to ride the same way um, essentially everyone rides the way that Mark Marquez used to ride or used to be the only one that really rode where it was all about getting the bike stopped uh, part of that is because that's the way that you get the best out of these bikes. Part of that is because specifically of the Ducati and the way that that bike has morphed into becoming something that is fantastic at slowing down and going into a corner. And with four Aprilias in the grid next year, we're going to see even more of it because that's something that they're very good at as well. That That's stopping. Um, that's why, for example, it took Maverick Vinales, I think, so long to adjust his riding style away from that Yamaha smooth, fast holding the corner speed into slam on the brakes, slam on the brakes, slam on the brakes, turn it and see what happens that the Aprilia needs. It's, it's you know, specific riding style is not something that I'm very good at spotting from, especially from TV pictures. It's a little bit easier at the side of the track, um, which I'm aware isn't something that most people ever get the privilege to go and do. Um, it's even easier, you know, even more of a privilege if you can spend a bit of time trackside with an ex-racer uh, Bradley Smith is phenomenal at explaining this. Um, maybe we should get Bradley on to answer the question. Maybe that would make it a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. You've you've now it's now a demand that you get Bradley on a pod for that, and also to hang out with you trackside in the practice session at some point this year, so we can so we can write about it as well. So actually, make that happen. I actually think we have wrote about that a long time ago. I think i think we have but we've been around for like three whole seasons well, now yeah, we exactly. can definitely <laughs> revisit ideas that are good maybe yeah maybe 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 this is a whole podcast maybe we should get bradley to come on and answer me this question for an hour i think he'd be up for that yeah let's let's make that happen all right let me tackle tackle the storyline side of things which i have decided is the easier part but i'm now just completely drawing a massive blank very well prepared ultimately you know you get as journalists you sort of this is why you relish round one is because then you sort of form your understanding of what the year's storylines are. And it's a, it's a bit harder to do that through testing and through previous expectation. Of course, you know, what, what dominates this off season for us is because of the expectation that the Ducati is going to be equally as comfortable as it was in 2022. Uh, we think it's, you know, it's... Pecco Bagnaia versus new factory teammate Enea Bastianini is one. And as a subset of that, Jorge Martin versus Enea Bastianini trying to prove to Ducati that they made the wrong choice in promoting the wrong guy when that seat was earmarked for Martin. So I think you can go into the season and basically, you, I think you are justified in basically looking at every session, highlighting Martin and Bastianini and seeing how they compare because I think they will be doing that. Well, at least, certainly, I would not be surprised if Martin does that, even though it's not something he would publicly say. Uh, beyond that, I mean, Mark and Honda, right? Mark Marquez and Honda, how much progress can they make? What his mood is, what he's saying about his future, what his you know general position is towards continuing with Honda, how it changes, how it doesn't change. You know, that's that's another another big one to follow, obviously. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this to you both. I didn't actually highlight this before the episode, but I think we should each pick 
our greatest MotoGP storyline ever from our time as MotoGP-related journalists. So to give you a small number of seconds to think about it, I'm going to come straight in with mine. And for me personally, it's everything to do with Marco Simoncelli. Mm. Uh, I mean, look, Sabank 15 and all everything that followed, n- nobody, like, it's nothing anybody feels particularly good about, but in terms of the most, like, outrageous thing to talk about and remember and sort of the one that still reverberates i don't i don't think we have any other contenders that are anywhere near like what it was um yeah val's doing my answer um it is sapang 15 as well like there's there's nothing that has made such an impact in the sport there was nothing that at the time was such high drama to cover yeah in fairness i think for all of us who've been around MotoGP in the last decade and a bit it is Sepang 15 which is the dominant story so Mina that is if you want to look back at some storylines from before your MotoGP time to look to to relish Marquez versus Rossi and that collision in Sepang 15 is is the one Um, but do check out everything around Marcus Simoncelli's tragically brief MotoGP career as well for a kind of heroic romantic heartbreak story. I almost feel like saying Sepang 15 from my side is a cop-out but I'm just like legitimately I'm sitting here because we didn't prep this trying to think of anything else that it's even like remotely close that would be the second best after it MotoGP has been really interesting this past decade it's been great there's like you won't hear any complaints from me but there's there's nothing even close that comes to the madness of Sepang 15 and you know the sort of all the ramifications and I guess what followed the Rossi Marquez collision in Argentina a few years later and all that that's also Sepang 15 all the most interesting stuff has been extensions of Sepang 15 and in some way one way or another I mean, I think for for me, on a personal level, um, possibly the two interesting things have been the whole Ianoni saga. Oh yeah. Um, simply because we were quite we were quite in depth in that on the race, um, and and paying a lot of attention to it, uh, and trying to explain the science behind it when a lot of others weren't, and we were kind of not the ones not taking Ianoni for his word whenever everyone else was. And, you know, the Court of Arbitration for Sports subsequently said that that was probably a good thing to have done. Um, and then the, the other one we're kind of still living because it's the current Mark Marquez saga and, and the recovery from the injury and, and where that story is going to end up. But we're still in that story. We're still telling it, um, which makes it harder to, to look back on it and reminisce. But, you know, Sepang 2015 is the story. That That, that is the, you know, the, there's there's no two ways about it. Here's my, I found my answer. It's the uh, the rookie class of 2019. That's my answer. Fabio Quartararo, John Mir, Pekka Banya, and Miguel Oliveira, all four coming in at the same time and how they've how they've progressed. And with Fabio being the headliner because of, you know, we, we keep referencing it because, yeah, none like it. Yeah, that's a good answer. The, the Andrea Iannone uh, doping test failure is a great one personally as well for us i think as as the race because that was like you say simon so early in our existence me and you hadn't worked together before and then this enormous story broke and just we set about tackling it in in a different way to how we might have done elsewhere and um you know you you don't want to as a journalist you sort of enjoy a story like that because of the challenge around it as a sports fan you think oh really you're throwing your career away like that a rider who for all his flaws he and only very talented as well but yeah, as a kind of way of setting setting out our stall for how we're going to cover things, I, I did get a journalistic kick out of uh, the Ianoni saga breaking in the race's early days and um, being able to use the fall of the maniac headline very early on in our existence was, was great fun. 
Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. So we said we're not just going to do sort of season previewy questions because you'd sent us such a variety. And we've just been talking about uh, Marco Simoncelli and Andrea Rianoni, so that and uh, tw- Sepang 15. So that's definitely proved that point. And um, we've got a few a few other questions to finish with, which are a little bit left field, I'd say as well. Thomas from Bruno has put two questions in one in one voice note. So let's listen to the first one, which as is from Bruno is unsurprisingly about Bruno. Howdy guys, uh, this is Thomas from Brno, originally from the States, fell in love with MotoGP here in 2014 because I live literally right next to the Brno Masaryk uh, track and uh, I had a question about that. What the heck uh, would it take for GP to come back to such a legendary track? I've been to Saxon Ring, I've been to the Red Bull Ring in Austria. Um, but I've personally ridden my bike on this track here in Brno. I think it's awesome. It's got up and down. I think all the uh, the riders love it as well, or at least from what I've heard from them. What the heck happened? Do you think there's any chance of the Premier Championship coming back here? Uh, I always had a dream that I would take my son there when he you know, starts getting old enough to go, which unfortunately hasn't happened since 2019 now. What would it take? Uh, maybe like an energy drink to buy the track, like Monster, something like that. Um, you guys have some inside information. So do you think there's any way for them to ever come back here? It's a real, real shame. Okay, I mean, I'm fully on board with Thomas wanting Bruno back and I don't live next door to it. It's a glorious place. I loved watching MotoGP races from there. Um, 
remind the listeners why MotoGP isn't there anymore and is there any hope whatsoever of, of it going back there? I mean, Thomas's suggestion was it needs an energy drink to buy the place to make it ever happen. So Bruno's problem is it, it has this issue that some circuits have where you, you it's very difficult to earn enough money running a race to pay Dorna's hosting fee, which is like 4 million euros from what we know. So what a lot of people do, a lot of uh, circuits speak to the local governments, the local government fronts the hosting fee, and in return you bring a ton of tourists into the area for the weekend, they spend a lot of money, and the government essentially make it all back, which you know it's, it's an effective model, it's why a lot of races happen um, in a lot of different series. Bruno's problem was that they then got to the point where they needed a track resurfacing really, really badly because it had become really sketchy and dangerous. And they wanted the local government to pay for it as well, which they wouldn't do. They approached Dorna about helping them to pay for it, which they wouldn't do. And essentially there was no money in the pot to pay to uh, to re-asphalt the place. And as of right now, from what we can gather... Uh, it's it's essentially lying, maybe not derelict, but it's being used by a few national level series. There's no international race in there, and unfortunately, painfully, horribly, there's a proposal floating around that the best thing to do with it would be to tear it apart and turn it into housing, which would be a crying shame. When you say housing, you mean like. What kind of housing? Like somewhere for people to live. Val. Vacation housing or <laughs> no, 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 because it's right in the edge of an expanding city. It's right in the edge of Brno, which is a a prosperous city. No, because you know, here's what you you said housing, and there was this like there was this like veneer of sadness, and immediately like my thought is, I mean, it's such a racing journalist thing to to think. Oh no, housing. That's a shame. We need tracks. We need racetracks. Oh, this is a, this is not just a racing journalist thing, though. This is this is this is human nature. Like I am looking out of my window here in Devon on a really quite nice view, and I, I am very glad to live in a house myself. I've been very glad to previously live in new build houses and being able to afford them at the time. I don't want people building houses on the field opposite me, and I'd be a bit sad if they did. I'd also be pleased that people could live there. So I think I I see where you're both coming from. I would be sad if Bruno no longer existed. I'll be glad if people in the Czech Republic had yeah. places to live. I, I wish both those things were possible, and I and I hope they can be. Yeah, to be fair, I don't I don't know what the the Czech Republic housing situation is. Whether there's a, an urgent need to to create extra living spaces or just people with money doing people with money things. Bruno is you know it's motorsport heritage. Losing it would be brutal. Having it you know demolished would be would be awful for for the history of our sport because it's you know, such an important beloved place. And in a sense, like even when they're not racing, I think all of us, like some part of our hearts agrees it should be there forever. Just, you know, even if we don't come back and we'll always dream that we will, but even if we don't so that it's it's there. But, you know, the world does not work like that in modern times. So while we're on existential human nature questions, let's have the second part of, of Thomas's, which is about uh, Valentino Rossi and Ducati, but not in the year you might be thinking. And then I had another question regarding um, Rossi. I'm super curious what you guys think if he ended up going to Ducati actually around the 2017-ish plus era 
and how do you think he would have fared on that bike? And I think that's it from my side. Thanks a lot for your guys' info with all of us. Uh, it's an awesome podcast to listen to. Awesome job. Keep it up. And love listening. Okay, so let's say it wasn't Jorge Lorenzo that went to Ducati for 2017. It was Valentino Rossi. Now, my gut feeling before you guys come in, my gut feeling here was I think he would have done slightly worse than Lorenzo did, but broadly similar. Am I? I'm, then I'm questioning myself going, am I being a bit too swayed by how his career tailed off? And was he actually still better than that? Would he have handled that transition better than Lorenzo? I've not needed so much time to get up to speed. Hopefully I haven't nicked your answer, Val, but I imagine you'll have more to say than me anyway, so go for it. No, I think that's, I mean, that's also my gut feeling, but it's, you know, the, the most important thing Jorge Lorenzo did at, at Ducati isn't the, the two wins and the fact that he got to grips with it, but it's clearly the part he's played in turning it from, obviously it was already on that path, but clearly he's played a part in turning it from that sort of bike that was really finicky and only good in a couple of places all year to a bike that was only bad in a couple of places all year to then in a bike that is just great everywhere. Jorge Lorenzo was clearly an important part in that path, even in the limited time that he had. I think there's pretty wide agreement that that's the case. And it's just, you know, it's a question of whether we have enough faith that Valentino Rossi would have had the same sort of developmental impact, which maybe it's got a, got a decent track record. Yeah, it didn't work at Ducati, but basically worked everywhere else. But also, like, let's be honest here, he was in decline. I mean, that, that much is clear. Um, and, you know, he still, at that point, he was clearly very competitive. I think in Lorenzo's final season, 16, I think Rossi finished ahead, if I remember correctly, or at least they were definitely extremely closely matched. And obviously 15 is 15. But those early years of Marek Vinales and Yamaha, also, you could make cogent arguments for either of them being the better side, even though I think it's clear that Maverick had a touch more raw pace. And certainly the single lap question is there. But... Andrea Davicioso was never a single lap demon and his Ducati years were okay. So could could Rossi have matched what Davicioso was doing? And yeah, possibly. Would he have won a title? I look, I really doubt it. And every year that you like every extra year, he was on more on borrowed time than even Lorenzo was and everybody else was, because with every year he got further away, which is, you know, it's only natural. Until, of course, we got to, you know was it 2020 and 2021 where he was just no longer particularly competitive i mean yeah Val has basically stolen everything i was going to say um not much to add to that uh i think lorenzo was marginally ahead of rossi at the time and i think you know he would have been marginally behind lorenzo's results at ducati had he went there um i don't think he would have won on the ducati because he wasn't winning on the yamaha uh, whereas you know Lorenzo was arguably stronger at the end of their time together as teammates, even though Rossi did finish ahead of him in the championship, he was you know he was doing it through consistency rather than through sort of outright pace. You know if we look at twenty sixteen, uh, Rossi only won two races, um, even though he finished second in the championship. So yeah, I think marginally behind Lorenzo, but arguably better than what he did in the Yamaha that year because, you know, the Ducati looked better and it's good bike in the rain, which always suits Rossi. 
I do think the chances of another ridiculous Rossi Marquez incident might have been higher had he been on a Ducati at that point. I think the kind of Ducati's particular strengths might have put them on on a collision course, clashing yeah. path. Yeah. A few, uh, yeah, a literal collision course with everything else that would have entailed. Yeah, agreed. I think you would have sniped a win. Like, that's that's my. But again, we're because the difference there for me is Ducati does not fire Valentino Rossi after two seasons if he wants to stay. I don't see it. Whereas with Jorge Lorenzo, that effectively did happen. I mean, you can you can argue the definition of the word fired, what exactly happened, etc. But maybe again, maybe there would have been a financial question there too. But I don't think he would have. You would have left after two seasons, which means his chances of adding a certain amount of wins or sniping wins would have been far greater. And I don't think he was that far far off Dovizioso. And Dovizioso, at a short point, got into a groove of consistently getting wins in a very particular way, which I think was also a way conducive to Rossi, uh, which you know doesn't necessarily rely on actually qualifying particularly well, which obviously was Rossi's big weakness towards towards the end of his MotoGP career. On Sundays, he was still fine until 2020, 2021. Uh, yeah, so I, yeah, I think it was sniped something. Just don't, title contender, don't see it. Well, you mentioning Rossi's, uh, sorry, Lorenzo's Ducati exit there. I, it's an, To me, it's enough of a strange MotoGP history anomaly that uh, effectively Ducati dropped Jorge Lorenzo for Danilo Petrucci. Imagine Ducati dropping Valentino Rossi for Danilo Petrucci. That would be uh, even... even, even stranger turn of events the story there isn't like it's not just like a decision that Daniela Petrucci was definitively going to be better than Jorge Lorenzo like it's not just that it's money yeah it's like uh it's more of a I guess a show of faith in Andrea Delicioso as your lead rider more than anything is how I've always seen it even though there was obviously the whole veneer of the whole I'm not a cha- I'm not a great rider. I'm a champion. Quotes blah 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 between Domenicali and Lorenzo, and things getting weirdly personal and all that. And that obviously, you know, the personal factor is obviously there. Simon's ready to talk about that exact thing, I think. But also, the 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 cash that they've laid out to Lorenzo for those two seasons, they did not clearly. They did not feel like that was an investment that they need to. They did not. They were very cautious about the the fallacy of sunk costs. Clearly. They weren't like, we already paid them 20-something million. We have to see this thing through. Clearly, that was not not the way they saw it. Yeah, I, I do see it was more complicated than that. I, I still maintain that it becomes an excellent pub quiz, pub quiz question one day. You know, when you The answer being that Danilo Petrucci replaced Jorge Lorenzo at Ducati. I think, mind you, Alex Marquez replacing Jorge Lorenzo on a works Honda is another thing that uh, five years earlier would have thought was complete madness as, as a storyline. Our final question from one of you out there is not so much a question as a statement and epic proposal. This is Todd from Dallas, Texas, talking about MotoGP penalties. Hi, this is Todd from Dallas, Texas. A big fan of the uh, MotoGP podcast. Uh, This past season, there was frequent mention of the need to overhaul the MotoGP stewards uh, penalty system. Uh, Simon suggested scrapping the current stewards and and having a former judge apply standards for assessing penalties with points added to riders' license, uh, as has been done in the past. Uh, I don't really have a question as so much a uh, topic for discussion, food for thought. Uh, I'm an attorney, and just for fun and for the sake of discussion, uh, decided to take a stab at drafting one 
possible new system for assessing penalties and against riders. Uh, so I'm sending this along uh, to provide perhaps a springboard for more discussion of that issue on the podcast. Uh, what I have offered is, is far from perfect. Uh, I don't even ride motorcycles. I'm just a huge fan. Uh, but as an attorney, I do have experience with applying rules and standards to a set of facts and reasoning to an outcome. And this was a fun little exercise regardless. Anyway, just offering this as food for thought or discussion on the podcast. Thanks. So uh, as Todd says, this is uh, something he's put together for fun. Now, if you're listening to us on um, a podcast platform, then uh, you, you won't be able to get this directly in the same way. But we are actually going to put Todd's full proposal for this system on the bottom of the article on the race website that goes with this podcast. So if you want to read um, everything Todd's uh, put together as he's taken the time to do it we'll stick it on the uh, stick it on the website blurb but uh val or simon do you want to quickly summarize uh todd's proposal or the headline elements of it and then, uh, then give your take on on it and frankly what MotoGP should be doing around penalties and stewarding it's borderline a research paper which, which as somebody with a dubious few uh, dubious past in academia i sort of appreciate yeah val when you when you saw it you did say this is the sort of thing i would do which i took as it is yeah it is except i'm not like i i would like to make clear i'm not a lawyer and never thought of being one and if i was your lawyer you'd be in jail uh <laughs> even if even if it was like a jaywalking ticket or something you'd, you'd end up in jail somehow uh, for a, for a while, um, it's you know it's sort of it's a resurrection of the penalty points system that is very prescribed with you know a lot of reference to precedent with specifically a procedure that would I imagine take several months of coaching stewards on precedent and having them review that precedent and you know obviously set precedent for rework sort of the the penalties take certain types. Uh, lay out the factors by points, like every single factor that comes into how we view an incident, you know, who was affected, what was the intent, whether, you know, the the riding line was reasonable, uh, how many, again, how many riders were affected, that kind of thing. So laying it out into a certain amount of points and having those points basically automatically determine what penalty you get. So it's, you know, it is, there is a subjective factor in it, but it is very much a sort of I'm not going to use the words mandatory minimums like in the USA, but it's a very legal way of looking at it. Like, I appreciate that and I get it. And I think it's sort of like sometimes when we, because in every motorsport, every single commenter always talks about consistency in refereeing. Every, not just in motorsport, every sport. Journalists always say it is the safest thing to say in absolutely every category. Uh, and, you know, we don't even, I think we don't even differentiate so much between which sports do better at it, which sports is just, you know, consistency, 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 which sometimes does fly in the face of the fact that no two incidents are quite the same. Some of them are, but some of them are really, really big outliers. MotoGP, obviously, with all that said, MotoGP does have a consistently problem. I think that much is clear. Um, MotoGP has a legitimacy and stewarding problem where the riders don't seem to have a ton of reverence for the current stewarding regime, which is me putting it incredibly kindly. Uh, this sort of proposal, I think they would maybe go for, although at the same time, nobody also likes things too formalized. Formula One always complains about how big the rulebook is. It's another very, 
usual thing to say is, oh, the F1 regulations are so long, the MotoGP regulations are so long, everything is prescribed, what happened to common sense? Obviously, it's either one or the other. You either get consistency and precedence, or you get common sense. You don't get both. It's one or the other, or it's some sort of mixture of the two, but you can't have both of them perfect. Um, writers, I think, would, would, would hate your particular proposal, Todd, because it's quite strict. I, they would they would get some serious penalties and they would complain about how you're no longer letting them race, etc., etc. Uh, I think the big hurdle in front of what you're proposing and you know the sort of formalized return of the penalty point system is it's just a ton of work and very formal. It's a ton of work. I'm not sure there's the commitment to that right now or the external forces pushing for it. Uh, it has to be baby steps. Right now, MotoGP stewarding is hilariously informal compared to F1, I think would be fair to say. Um, it's very sort of less legal and more. We sort, we sort it out between ourselves quietly, sometimes not even with public proclamations of what's been investigated, what's been, you know, what part of the regulations has been breached, what is precedent. Precedents don't really generally get cited. You can all, you can't immediately pivot from that to something extremely formalized. You do it bit by bit, and then you understand which level you want to be on, which level is the one that you're happy with, uh, formality. That's that's the way I see it. I mean, Todd, thank you for the proposal, because it is the most detailed piece of work that I've ever had submitted um, as a, a sort of MotoGP journalist from someone on the, on the benches at home watching along. It is, um, yeah, it's impressive. Um, as Val said, there, there are elements to it that would be very difficult to implement, but there are other elements to it that I think are very, very necessary. Um, you go into quite a bit of detail about the training that would be given to stewards, and I think that that is something that we absolutely have to address because simply picking guys who used to race motorbikes 30 years ago and presuming that they've got the ability to to coherently make decisions and then vocalize those decisions and explain them and back them, it, it doesn't work. We know this. Um, we know that the current system under Freddie Spencer is flawed. And, you know, I've, I've called for a long time for someone with more of a legal brain to come in and, and be part of that process. But if the alternative is taking these racers and giving them a bit of a legal brain that I don't see why that wouldn't work as well. So that element of it, by all means, uh, would be welcome. And then just the, you know, the process of writing down what they're thinking would be hugely helpful as well because it would let us understand a little bit more, you know, how they reach the decisions that they reach. Um, because right now they're... Uh, they, they don't like speaking to anyone, it seems, including some of the writers involved in incidents. Um, so formalizing that process would also work for me. Um, in terms of the general theme of it, you know, I've been calling for a return to penalty points. And while this is maybe not a document that we should implement, it's a really interesting starting point. And I'd love to see someone in a position of authority pick it up and run with it a little bit uh, and see what we would get out of it. But... You know, as Val says, I, I don't think that there's much of a much of a desire to do that within MotoGP at the minute, especially from the people who have the ability to actually implement it. It's tricky. I, th I always think of myself as someone who's quite pro a light touch approach to 
stewarding slash refereeing um but i think that's possibly because i have too much faith in humans to not want to actually endanger each other's safety and lives in sport and to actually you know not make crazy reckless decisions and to that that to be a deterrent enough in itself so yeah tricky i'm also though you're never going to get consistency when you're not dealing in absolutes like this this is a bunch of gray areas around intent and error and different physics of bikes involved you want you want to deter people from doing absolutely stupid things you want to punish them for doing things that have had bad consequences for others and perhaps not for themselves but mm, yeah i like I, I like the broad thrust of todd's proposal but i th- i think i wouldn't ever want to be a steward put it that way yeah i i'm i'm i'm, I'm not a light touch person i'm a, i'm very strict very authoritarian when it comes to this thing and this thing alone when it comes to sporting sporting <laughs> regulations um i think you should be punished if you've ruined somebody else's race significantly i think things like opening lap lenience and stuff like that are complete nonsense just they go against my very soul makes no sense to me uh i think when riders say oh you're not gonna you're gonna stop us from racing if you if you regulate this and this, nobody will ever do an overtake anymore. I think it's complete nonsense every time they say it. Not an ounce of truth to that. That's not how they think on the bikes and they know it. Um, so yeah, I, you know, when I say it's too strict for riders, I wouldn't say it's too strict for me. Like I, I, I like the proposal with the you know, long laps and pit lane starts and eventual one race bans. But I appreciate that that's, you know, I'm not in charge. And even if I were in charge, I would not get dictatorial about it and that sort of grad MotoGP clearly prefers its current less affair sort of approach to it i love the fact that in the course of this episode we've suggested a, a whole rethinking of dawner's tv strategy we've broached the prospect of MotoGP with no yamahas in the grid we've thought about rewriting the penalty system and we got val's impression of a reckless MotoGP rider in the steward's room with a slightly how can I try to think of how to describe the voice Val put on to in person? Duncey accent. Duncey, that's perfect. I try to think of a, yeah. an acceptable way to refer to that. Duncey, I think, is, is ideal. Um, yeah, t- Todd, thank you so much for the detailed proposal. Everybody who's uh, had input on this episode, uh, the, the kind comments about the podcast are massively appreciated as well. It's, it's always, uh, when, we, when we throw out for listener questions, the, the response is always so appreciated, very humbling, as are the, the listenership figures. So thank you for listening and enjoying and uh, throwing in your questions whenever we ask for them. Um, so testing this weekend we'll be back very early next week with everything we think you need to know about what's happened at the final test of the 2023 preseason at Portimao Um, thank you for your time this week thank you for your questions and we look forward to hearing from you again next time we shout hopefully you're looking forward to hearing from us again next week The Athletic